Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi everyone, it's Kate here and I'm back with this week's episode of Truth in Fiction. We're talking about how to layer fiction through the cinematic. Um, And I mean much more than just making an allusion to a film or say an adaptation of a book into a film, even though I think these are really important as well. So I'll talk about different ways that I think film can amplify fiction and um, the ways that we can do this. Um, the catalyst this week comes from the the chapter that I published this past weekend for Peak members on Substack called Corey Bay, where I made an allusion to Fruit Chan, who's a f- Hong Kong filmmaker. Um, but I'm also doing something more with his work. So I'll talk about Fruit Chan a little bit today. I'll also talk about different sort of philosophies of um, cinema and film theory that might help us to think about the way we would access cinema's relationship with other kinds of fiction. Of course, cinema itself um, is often a, a fiction. Um, and and also look at literary examples that use film in different ways. Uh, and the spaces and places focus this week is on the apartment, um, which I think is a really unique kind of space because of its um, its containment within a building juxtaposed with other apartments or other kinds of dwellings, perhaps. Um, the transitory nature of the apartment space, um, and what that has to do with cinematic stories. Um, and so I, I did my PhD dissertation on um, the filmic apartment ellipsis in Hong Kong and New York films about immigrants. And I was looking at the way that certain filmmakers use that space to share ideas both about the immigrants' identities and the way that different cultures come together to interact with their identities or affect their identities and the way that um, different elements of the location, like the the laws and the cultures surrounding them, um, kind of either infiltrate that that private apartment space or um or they're kept out so I have a lot to say about that I'm not going to go into it in as much detail as I did in my dissertation so you can always you know look at that more carefully uh if you like you know it's it's really available online and I've got a link for you there but that's that's just kind of where these ideas came from and I also looked at uh Fruit Chan's work quite a quite a bit in in that work. Um, and so I'm really interested in him on a few different levels, um, but he's just a brilliant filmmaker. So we can think about film's relationship with fiction in in several ways, maybe just a few ways to get us started or thinking about, as I mentioned, illusion. So illusion might be within the narration or it might be by a particular character who mentions this film either by title or maybe by uh, reciting a line from from the film, like a a very known line or uh, mentioning a character or a scene or something like that. Uh, Perhaps you have a kind of um, sort of mise-en-abim being created or starting to be created if there's a film being viewed within the fiction, um, being viewed by the fictional characters and... You know, there might be reasons for that. It, it, it can change the shape of the story. There might be implicit echoes of a film. So maybe it's never really named, but we can kind of almost feel it haunting the text in some way. You can also use um, different kinds of film genre for other fictions. Think of the Western, noir, French, new wave, 
um, you know, of course, there is some overlap between genres of fictions, but you can think about the way that specifically cinema portrays the Western, for example, the different tropes and motifs, the different forms of montage, um, characterization, the sounds even, and the way that that might enter a written text. Um, you know, and of course, um, this works vice versa as well, the way those genres are influenced by literature. But right now, we're looking at the way um, those those cinematic um, tropes and sequences um, create something that can be used elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and we can think about montage and cuts. So the editing of a film as well as the cinematography itself to create an aesthetic and the way that that might come into the language you use in your fiction um, or the way that you cut between chapters or scenes. Um, you know, although, you know, you could do this without the cinematic, maybe it can give you just some ideas to take it further. And uh, there's, there's more, but I think that those are maybe some good ways to just start about... Um, thinking about it. Yeah. So um, one thing I'll, I'll start by talking about is this idea of the quasi-real genre in cinema. And what this means is that it's, it's not really something that's pretending to be real or documentary, but it's, it shows us a lot about um, everyday life. And the quasi-real genre is unique in that it tends to, and um, this is what um, you know, theorists who started talking about and coining this term were saying, is that um, it can go deeper than documentary in some ways. Not about maybe a particular person named so-and-so's life, but in terms of the ideas of individuals. So, you know, I was looking at immigrants in my research, and that's a huge category, but then I had broken it down to certain specific kinds of immigrants, sex workers in Hong Kong, for example, or um, green card marriages in the U.S., or um, gay couples in the U.S. who were seeking um, immigration status before um, before it was allowed on a federal level for, for gay marriage. So we had like a lot of laws that we were looking at and, you know, way this might affect an individual. If you use a quasi-real genre, you can make a sort of a realistic, um, a realistic film. You know, it still might use like non-diegetic sound, like music in the background and, and things like this. It doesn't mean it's fully like a documentary, but it shows you um, elements of everyday life, you know, even though there is a narrative arc as well. Um, and I found that a lot of Hong Kong independent filmmakers were using this um, genre and they had some really beautiful ways of showing this. So Hong Kong has a really rich cinematic history. Um, you know, you, you might be more, depending on your background, you may be more aware of like the action films, um, like the Kung Fu and Shaolin Kung Fu starting in the 80s, especially when Hong Kong became Oriental Hollywood. That's what it was coined as. Um, and, you know, you probably heard of Jackie Chan, some of his films. Uh, there's a great statue of him on the Avenue of Stars in Chimsachui in Hong Kong. Um and it's kind of, you know, this homage to him in that city. But, you know, he's not the only one. Michelle Yeoh, who just this past year won the Academy Award, you know, interviews with her. Now she talks about having done her own stunts in Hong Kong, jumping onto trains and things like this. So she was she was doing um, a lot of this herself, just like Jackie Chan. Um, there were some really wonderful action stars from that time period. In the 90s, we still have some of those films, um, but we start to move toward the handover from British colonial rule to China or to um, the, the, um, the SAR, which special administrative region, which meant that Hong Kong was sort of in between and not really knowing where its future was going. So you see a lot of these films sort of questioning the handover um, you know, concerned about it, kind of a depression about it, but also exploring what Hong Kong identity 
is at that moment. You know, it it is and is not related to the British rule. It is and is not related to its um, Chinese ancestry and the coming Chinese um, take back um, of this of this region. And so, you know, what what is it really? Um, so you have a lot of filmmakers working with that. You also have into the 2000s dealing with um, SARS and the way that, you know, an earlier version of the COVID pandemic hit um, Hong Kong um, quite hard, not as hard as this most recent pandemic. So SARS was a little bit like a, an ominous warning to the people of Hong Kong of what could happen with disease in such a densely populated space and what that would mean um, for people in these tiny apartments as well who maybe had to stay in um, for people in the public housing who um, were in very close quarters what did that mean for them but there's also the rise of some other Hong Kong stars like Fei Wong, Chow Yun-fat, Maggie Chung, Andy Lau um, as well as some of the filmmakers like Wong Kar-wai who um, has also made films in English so He's um, more known uh, internationally, I guess. He's known for In the Mood for Love, which is just a beautiful film which takes place in a 1960s apartment building in Hong Kong. And so he's playing with this apartment space a lot in his work. Chungking Express deals with that 1997 handover idea and, and Hong Kong identity. That's a really interesting one to start with if you're not familiar with his work or you want to know more of his Hong Kong work. Um, and Happy Together is a beautiful film which takes place mostly in Argentina where you have a gay couple from Hong Kong who's living there, but they have flashbacks to Hong Kong. Um, and there's this really cool scene of a Cory Bay flyover, um, that's inverted as a flashback upside down because, you know, because of the way that they're thinking about Hong Kong, uh, metaphorically. So he's got a bunch of other films, but I really like those three, I'd recommend them. Um, Anne Hoy, uh, who's also likewise still making films today, she has, um, she was maybe first known more for her, a couple of films about Vietnam, including uh, Boat People. But in terms of Hong Kong, A Simple Life is more recent, and it's about kind of a cleaner or a nanny in Hong Kong, what we'd call a helper. Um, somebody who helps the the family and often lives with the family in a very small space has so very intimate connection with this family and what happens to that person as they get older and are sick and need help themselves um and are you know are they just treated as employee or do they become part of the family and so the way we are um sorry that was for a simple life and then the way we are um also depicts everyday life in Hong Kong through a uh, new town, which is, or these kind of like pop-up, they call them towns, but it's like cities, really, if you're coming from Europe, at least, or the U.S., because it's like uh, all these skyscraper apartment buildings, um, also with things like maybe a cinema, a grocery store, um, several grocery stores, um, all the things that you might need for daily life so that you could kind of have your daily life in this small space with quite a few people. Um, but it doesn't have sort of the cultural markings because it's been created so quickly out of nothing as a space to put the rising population and the dense population in the city. So in this new town, you know, we often have a lot of um, immigrants from China, for example, who may not have um, a lot of money or access to education, who came searching for something else. And, and so there's a lot of um, kind of disillusionment in these places. But there's also um, the desire to form a community like anywhere else. And so Anhui is investigating like uh, some really beautiful stories of just some families and the way that they they connect with each other. There's not too much of a storyline in that one, I'll say. So if you kind of need a big story arc, you might not like the way we are. But Night and Fog, alternatively, um, it's, it's also based in a space like this, in a new town. It's based, though, on a 
true crime story of a murder-suicide, which is quite a horrific story. I mean, there's children involved as well. So, you know, if you want to sleep well, I wouldn't watch this one right before bed. Um, But it's also a really important story because I think a lot of these tales in the Newtown areas become kind of invisible. They don't really affect, uh, you know, Hong Kongers living in Central. They don't really affect international news. Um, it's invisible people who are left behind who probably don't have much money. Maybe they're immigrants and they don't have a lot of other ties to the city itself. Um, but it's also a really, so it's a really beautiful film. This really kind of wonderful character sketch, um, of the mother and the family, especially, but also the, even the father who, um, who is the one who turns to murder suicide, but he, we, we see him in a multifaceted way. And so Anhoy is just, yeah, great, great filmmaker. Um, and Fruit Tan, I'm going to be talking about today. Um, and he has worked in this, that pre and post 97 sort of genre, looking at what the handover means. He's looked at a lot of these stories of immigrants in Hong Kong. He has a trilogy about sex workers called the the prostitute trilogy where he really humanizes um, women who are immigrants and working in this industry. Um, and he does, he does things that are funny sometimes. He moves into kind of the horror category sometimes. But he's also playing always with space and this location of Hong Kong. Um, and he's making us kind of question the space as what we can call a spatial uncanny. So it, it gives us a dissonance in the space we might be accustomed to um, living in already. And this might be something as um, one of the starting points to think about in your own fiction, maybe a location that you're working with and the cinema surrounding that space, maybe the really known films or the way some independent filmmakers that you like are playing with that idea of location and what it has to do with identity as well. And you can kind of um, disorient us a little bit as well by sort of flipping it on its head. I mean, like Wong Kar Wai did literally in Happy Together with that scene of the Corey Bay flyover or... um, or it can be um, more uh, more implicit in the way that just kind of the unexpected seems to almost seep out of the setting itself. So um, here's just a, a quote, something I wrote about during my research, just a short one to start orient us, orienting us in Fruit Chan's work. So in a discussion of the spatial uncanny in Fruit Chan's film Made in Hong Kong, which takes place in a public housing estate. Esther Chung links spectrality, urban space, home, and cinema into the ghostly chronotope. The the ghostly city, as an aesthetic category, aims to evoke the sense of homelessness, dread, and alienation that one feels at a place which is called home. It carries the same interpretive power as the architectural uncanny to trace an unsettling and ambiguous contemporary sensibility produced by urban mutations. The the panoramic uncanny is also created as viewers traumatized by promised and broken dreams look out at the skyline. And so in a lot of these Hong Kong films, especially related to 1997 in some way, um, we see the panorama um, often in the distance. So often something that it's like a it's like a different kind of American dream that people are reaching for, or it's it's this vision of what Hong Kong was or is or could be. It's really unclear um, what that means, but it's it's an undeniable um, identity. You know, when we see that skyline, we know we know what it is and who it is, and Hong Kong becomes a kind of character in the film in that way. So, um, so I mention um, not Made in Hong Kong in my chapter, but a film called Dumpling. So Made in Hong Kong is also just a really fantastic one. And I'll put uh, the trailer in the in the post for you guys there. Um, it's sort of buildings Roman, but it's it's a bit dark at times as well. 
And so it's it's it can be touching at moments, but it's fearful for the future of Hong Kong. And it takes place in a public housing estate. So you get to kind of see um, that space, which you don't see in a lot of films. Um, and you don't really see unless you live in these spaces or you're like a social worker or something who goes into these spaces, even though. Um, a huge um, number of Hong Kongers live in public housing. I think at one point it was when at the time of my research, it was 50% had some kind of public housing in Hong Kong. Um, but you can just see how small the apartments are and how close people are living, but then also the kind of community that forms. So I'll just read the, the short part right at the beginning of the novel I've serialized here that mentions this film, although it's implicitly alluded to later on. And I do allude to Anhui's Night and Fog in the next chapter. So if you're reading along, you can try to look for that reference. Um, okay, so I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm amplifying images of the real. Here it's describing a miscarriage. And so it's not a miscarriage in Fruit Chan's film. Um, in dumplings, but it's talking about um, abortion and it's talking about the political nature of Hong Kong's relationship with China. So there are kind of a lot of layers going on here at once. So the, the part where I mention it is just this. Ivy wondered for a moment if it had actually come from her body or if it had come up from the pipes of her old apartment building, like the start to a Fruit Chan horror film. Unbidden, she recalled his images of dumplings created from human fetuses and the bloody suicide in the bathtub. He seemed to be writing this scene. So by referencing the film, we can also enter these scenes of the ghostly and the virtual. Um, and this particular film um, was both marketed to a more local audience and an international one. So there was a cut version that became part of this um, series of three horror films. Um, other, the other two were by were by other directors um, that were marketed more internationally um, through Apple streaming at the time, um, as well as on DVD. Back when people used to buy more DVDs, so, um, so, so yeah, so so it's something that you know, maybe a lot of people have have seen, have witnessed. But um, even if not, the idea of this in the in the dumplings themselves are um, it's really grotesque. But this, this woman um, who is an immigrant from China, she goes across the border and she takes um, fetuses from the abortion clinic and brings them over to put into dumplings as a kind of a beauty treatment. So. It's, you know, it's speaking of what kind of beauty people are looking for and the extent that they'll go to get it. It's talking about, you know, one child policy. It's talking about the idea of abortion, the the horrific sort of um, way that this character who has more dimensionality in the in the longer um, version before it was re-edited um, how she really becomes dehumanized herself. And it's all about um, economic transactions and she doesn't even seem to notice, you know, what she's, what she's doing. Um, and the suicide that happens later on as well, you know, won't go into the details of it here. Um, you know, and of course it's, it's an awful thing to, to witness in a film, but we see this in a lot of these Hong Kong films that have to do with 1997 and the relationship between Hong Kong and China. And I think, you know, it's, it's two things. It's the literal suicides because there is a high rate of suicide in Hong Kong. Um, and it's also the figurative suicide of not knowing what to do in this situation. There seems to be no way out. And you have this strange um, post-colonial space where, um, you know, people are unsure, should they look to Britain, who was the colonizer, um, you know, so one time the oppressor um, for not just help, but also identity and maybe um, connection. And you do have, you know, many Hong Kongers who have left um, seeking political asylum in the UK, for example, and they've been 
um, they've been let in. So, you know, you have, you have that, and then you have, you know, the return to China. Is it a, is an, is it an acceptance of China and what China is? Um, it's also about, you know, the stuff that's unique to Hong Kong itself that really, you know, maybe was influenced by the British, but maybe also has nothing to do with them. Um, maybe it has to do with the, also the more international nature of Hong Kong in addition to its more original cultural roots, um, its, its roots in terms of, you know, location as well. And I talked about Hong Kong topography a little bit last week, just as an introduction and how that creates um, the people who inhabit there. So people who, you know, are of nature, of strong, uh, who are strong, who um, live near the water, who live near the mountains, um, but who have also adapted to living in a very dense space um, with many cultures. And many people there have really accepted these different kinds of cultures in. They've survived a Japanese occupation during World War II as well. You know, what does that have to do with their culture? But I think that the, the inclusion of these suicides in, and sometimes they're central to the film and sometimes they're sort of a, a mention or an aside or like a catalyst to move things into action, um, they, they show a sort of, you know, people don't, don't know what to, don't know what to do with that information. And I think it goes back to, you know, the other stuff I mentioned about Hong Kong post-culture, which Akbar Abbas talks about, the Hong Kong cultural scholar, and this, this idea of the reverse hallucination where people don't see the culture that's actually there. So sometimes it's hard to see the good that's there. And even after the umbrella revolution and all the protests and everything that's happened in the last few years, um, in, um, relation to China, you know, there's still this rich Hong Kong culture and maybe people don't see it below the surface. So part of what the job of these Hong Kong filmmakers is doing is not to say, oh, there's no problem. Everything is, you know, just fine. Like everybody chill out. No, it's not that. But it's also to say, hey, look a little more closely, even in the public housing estates, even in the new towns, um, even in these small spaces like the markets or the MTR, which is the metro, um, and you can find culture and you can find um, the kind of culture that brings people together and lifts people up and celebrates who they are. So it's it's obviously um, quite complex, and I think that's what makes it interesting. Um, but I'll just I'll just read this other um passage from my from my work before just so you can see how I'm looking at dumplings um in relation to those ideas about immigrants um and I do reference again the uncanny as I mentioned the architectural uncanny which comes from Freud and Hemlike which literally means unhomely right so when we talk about the uncanny it comes from Freud's unhomely and so I link that with the apartment space where you know if a place becomes unlike your home unlike your home space then it becomes a foreign um space to inhabit and that that changes everything for the dweller whether that's your your entire um city or your the country that you live in or the actual apartment or house um that you are inside of okay so Hopefully this just, I'm, I'll kind of uh, read you this part and then I'll, I'll leave it at that and go into cinema a little bit more generally and then go into um, the literary examples. So Dumplings depicts the story of domestic abuse in the form of incest that here leads to an adolescent girl's death after a late-term abortion and her mother's vengeful violence against the father, her husband. It also emphasizes a haunting ending with now three ghostly images of women corrupted by Hong Kong society. This public housing estate family is the minor role to the protagonist May, a former abortionist from the mainland who now collects fetuses, smuggles them through immigration, and feeds them to rich Hong Kongers as beauty treatments. This film, thankfully, is not based on a true story, but echoes of reality are felt through China's traumatic one-child policy, as well as both domestic abuse and the price of beauty in Hong Kong. Chan's film is part of Three, Three Extremes Trilogy from 2004 with the Japanese and Korean directors Mike Takashi and Chan Wook Park. 
The trilogy makes the film more visible globally and therefore allows Chan to be given a wider reaching political voice. This internationally marketed version is a shorter and slightly changed film. The longer original contains slightly more human, rounded characters, also cleverly developed through a final ghostly flashback scene. The original includes a male perspective through Mr. Lee's discovery of the secret youth potion, his meeting with May, and their sexual encounter. His wife, Mrs. Lee, also discovers that his masseuse lover is pregnant with his child. She pays to have the fetus aborted, and it is implied that she will eat the child. In the simplified plotline, Mr. Lee is merely a side character, but an added sequence of Mrs. Lee giving herself an abortion and eating the fetus is included. It is even more satirical, less believable. Here, Chan prefers to leave us with something horrific and haunting. In the original, he brings us back to the human qualities underneath the female characters by bringing us to ghostly images of their previous innocence. In this way, it is more of a political and sociological film, like Hoy's, looking at the root of traumatic abuse rather than only the frightening result that objectifies the victims. And here I'm talking about Anne Hoy's um, Night and Fog. Both films take us into apartments where fear and horror are real. However, the danger is not in the invasion of immigrant beings, cultures, and ideologies. Rather, the real problems are globalization and post-modernity's isolation and inhuman treatment of certain individuals. A negotiation of the border, however, highlights the impact of spatial injustice. Although inclusive of the poor and anyone dehumanized by the machine of progress, Immigrants are especially vulnerable and, perhaps, have the answer about achieving an active Quarkazan identity despite urban dangers. And Quarkazans here um, reference people who are in this state of sort of constant motion or unsettlement, becoming not only in spite of, but also because of the progress and internationalism of society. One problem is that the former group resents the more active identity of the immigrants and therefore does not help them to assimilate and find enchantment, the dreamy, uncanny animation of the panorama that has already been cut off from themselves. So clearly some difficult topics here when we're talking about abortion, you know, but Fruit Chan, I think, is saying, hey, this seems like such a, you know, it is a horrific thing, but in China, at least, it's such um it's such a normal thing because of the one-child policy, you know, which doesn't exist at this point of recording anymore. Um, but it became, you know, also a forced thing, forced abortions, um, not just, um, not just by choice. And then what? How? What does that look like in Hong Kong? And what is the conversation between the two countries over the border about this issue? Um, and so I think he, by addressing it head on, it may seem like he's not so sensitive to, you know, the horror of it. But I would say it's actually the opposite, that he's he's allowing it to come to the surface for people to talk about because it's all around them. Um, and, you know, this is something that um, Annie Arnaud, for example, when she, when she writes of abortion in L'Evanement or the, the happening, it is in English, um, you know, this is... This is her experience with abortion, but made into a fiction. And she says in that book um, that that it's just simply these stories just don't exist to read about. And that she had looked in the library during her experience for stories and all she could find was data and medical information. And she couldn't find personal stories, even though um, it's something that so many people go through. Um, and so I think, you know, that's one aspect of fru what Fru Chen is trying to do. So we'll get away from that sort of, uh, well, it is a horror film, but this horrific topic and talk more generally about film just for a moment. I won't go into a lot of detail here and more leave you with some things that, you know, you could investigate more with, or if there's a topic you want me to pick up on in more detail later on in the podcast, do let me know in the comments because, um, you know, in this kind of, you know, first iteration, um, I'm really talking about big topics like um, cinema, which we can, of course, break down into more detail. So just let me know if there's something you're interested in. So if you are interested in cinema, I would look at Gilles Deleuze, um, his Cinema 1 and Cinema 2, or Movement Image and Time Image, if you haven't looked at it before. 
Um, if you do read French, um, I think it's much better in French. Um, you know, like most things are in the original, but it's it can feel like I think a complicated more complicated text in the translation, if that makes sense. Um, he's he's drawing on the work of Henri Bergson, and he's looking at um, he's looking a lot at the frame, the shot, and the montage, and kind of breaking it down for us, which is a really useful way to think of all fiction. You know, think of your book that way as a or as a curated space of visual art, and the way that you know editing in terms of montage can change the shape of a story or the way that you can like in the in the new wave French cinema which he's writing during the same time you know you can also invert um, time sequences to tell, tell a story a different way I'm not saying you should always do that um, I don't usually do that but I think for some people that can create a kind of success so just thinking about how that works and when you think of the frame and the shot you know it's not just I don't really mean I do mean also framing like we talked about last week and the way you enter the text, but also the frame around that particular scene that you're telling us about. Um, you know, what can you what can you see in that frame? What's invisible in that frame? What is outside of the narrator or the protagonist's eye? Um, or if you've got like a dialogue going on, you know, maybe one person can, you know, think about what, imagine what their frame is, what they can see and imagine what the other character's frame is, what they can see. And that might change the way they speak to each other, change the shape of the story. Um, you know, think about a close up in a novel and what that looks like, um, which can be, you know, describing the face itself, you know, the way that the brow is furled, but it, it can also be, um, a more metaphorical way of thinking about that space in the novel. So something else he talks about is crystallization, um, which is the idea that, you know, when you see when you see actors and this relates to places as well, um, but actors in film, um, they are also you might know them as not know them personally, but know of them as a real person outside of that, say in interviews or um, photographs or whatever it might be. And also you've seen them in other films. So layered with those other characters, it's all part of the character you see on screen at that time, even if those other characters or that real life person are not alluded to, um, no matter how great that actor is at getting into a role, there's kind of these echoes of all of those um, examples in, in one. Um, and it changes it changes the way that we experience the film. Um, you know, you can think of any actors you've seen in, in a lot of different stories. You know, maybe you think of somebody like Bill Murray or Robert De Niro or Scarlett Johansson or I mentioned Michelle Yeoh before. You know, I see everything everywhere all at once really differently by knowing her um, her earlier Hong Kong action films, um, which I think tell a lot of the unsaid in that film. You know, it was quite a funky, complicated film in a lot of ways, also quite touching in some ways, kind of goes in so many different directions. Um, I did a short take podcast on it um, earlier in the year. But, uh, you know, I think seeing her in those early films where she's you know, doing her own stunts and, you know, what does that, what does that mean here? Which uses a lot of Shaolin Kung Fu as well. Um, so it creates this kind of haunting and it also cre creates an experience of um, questioning the virtual world. So Deleuze does a lot with the actual and the virtual and the way that we create create these kind of imaginary spaces by what's in front of us in a text, um, and but he doesn't say that you know the virtual is only this kind of weird imaginary space. It's actual our actually our living reality because you know we we don't just experience what's what is in front of us um, as facts. We experience them as stories and as parts of. Uh, something that relates to our memories and our imagination and our creativity moving forward. And, you know, so for better or for worse, um, 
what we see, you know, it, it looks different to, to each of us. And so if you can kind of access how to describe that experience in your fiction, you can get at a really cool, um, a really cool concept and one that he also talks about in relation to cinema. So Deleuze doesn't only write about cinema. He's, if you're not familiar with him, he's, he's a philosopher. He's writing about a lot of different ideas. Um, but when he talks about cinema, he goes into this idea quite deeply. And I think because of the visual nature of cinema, he's able to maybe explain it more clearly. For me, it, it makes more sense. Yeah. So he says, for example, the link between man and the world is broken. Henceforth, this link must become an object of belief. It is the impossible which can only be restored within a faith. Belief is no longer addressed to a different or transformed world. Man is in the world as if in a pure optical and sound situation. The reaction of which man has been dispossessed can be replaced only by belief. Only belief in the world can reconnect man to what he sees and hears. The cinema must film not the world but belief in this world our only link and so he sees film not as just capturing what is what is actually there in front of the the camera but capturing a whole idea that's amplified by the way that the filmmaker creates this experience for the viewer um so we can also look um in page 283 for example of um of the of the first book of his of cinema one he talks about the political cinema not as dress, uh, addressing particular people but the invention of the people it addresses so um somebody like fruit chan who is looking at cinema and looking at political issues um he would be creating a space for people to maybe start talking about this even if they hadn't already. So he's not like looking for activists. He's more showing us what's really going on. Um, and he also links film with a conscience. He discusses the difference from still photography and the way a narration can be shaped into a virtual world as a kind of ellipsis to play in or this kind of like fluid space that's in flux, which is how I see all fiction. It's kind of a space to play with our ideas of reality and the way that we see reality. Um, so again, if you want me to go more into Deleuze, I'm really happy to do that. If you've had enough of Deleuze, you know, maybe we can have like a smaller coffee chat just for the people who are. And I'm sure, you know, some of you have, um, other areas of Deleuze that you've worked on before. So I'd like to go into some literary examples now, and I've got a few for you here. Okay. And maybe today, because I've spent a lot of time on the buildup, I'll, I'll mention them a little bit more briefly. And, um, you know, again, with these, we can always go into them more as well. So with Let the Great World Spin by Kaluma Khan, um, in the opening of this book, we have a reference to Philippe Petit's high wire walk between the Twin Towers in the 70s. So he says... Those who saw him hushed on Church Street, Liberty, Cortland, West Street, Fulton, Bessie. It was a silence that hurt itself, awful and beautiful. Some thought at first that it must have been a trick of the light, something to do with the weather, an accident of shadowfall. Others figured it must be the perfect city joke. Stand around and point upward until people gathered, tilted their heads, nodded, affirmed, until all were staring upward at nothing at all, like waiting for the end of a Lenny Bruce gag. But the longer they waited, the surer they were. He stood at the very edge of the building, shaped dark against the gray of the morning, a window washer maybe, or a construction worker, or a jumper. But it's actually this man, this French man, who is famous for um, going on a tightrope between the Twin Towers um, without a net, without anything to catch him at all. And what's interesting about the start of Let the Great World Spin um, which is in some ways I would classify it as post 9-11 literature, right? So it's also looking at the, the space of absence where the towers were and the way that the towers brought people together in New York in unique ways. And this is one of those ways. And you have all those streets mentioned at the beginning so that you're aware of different individuals coming from different spaces 
in the city to view. And so they would all have a different perspective. Um, you know, it also mentioned, you know, some were afraid he would jump. Some um, thought he was just joking. Some, you know, so people have their, um, the different interpretations they bring with them. And so there's um, the film, the documentary, Man on Wire from 2008, as well as The Walk from 2016. That, that one is after the book. But the, the film of the act itself, um, although not a fiction, it's almost created into a kind of fiction even as it takes place because it's like this surreal story. It's as if, as if it's been staged um, just for people to kind of wonder at in awe and um i think it's it's you know it's it's really cool the way that mccann starts with this he's got such a beautiful book about um all these different people in new york and the way their stories come together it's quite touching um and i think this kind of sets the sets the tone and is always in the background so uh, a different one that goes in a totally different direction is uh, Tell Me I'm an Artist by Chelsea Martin. And in this book, we have a young woman who's in art school and she's kind of questioning her purpose for being there, um, partly because it seems like um, other people know exactly what they're doing or maybe have more money than she does or for all these different reasons. And so she sets out to, for her kind of, senior project to retell the film Rushmore um but the strange thing about it is is that she's never seen the film and so she wants to interview other people in order to recreate the film based on other people's experiences of the film um which is kind of it seems like a strange thing to do but it, it, this is also a lot about absence right referencing and creating something out of what is no longer there um, you know, she doesn't have access to this cultural knowledge directly and she's choosing not to because she could, of course, just sit down and watch the movie one night. Um, but what she's interested in, what is she missing, if anything? And how does she or how does she maybe still have access to that cultural knowledge? Because in what ways is it about um, people's reactions to it rather than the original film itself? So sometimes films become, you know, more than themselves um, and the way that we remember them is unique for each of us. And that's what Martin is, is getting at. So, you know, you could look at a really iconic film and think, you know, here it's really central. It's, it's not on say every page of the novel, but probably every third or fourth page, um, Rushmore is mentioned. And so if there's, if there's one that kind of speaks of something in a certain way that you want to play with, um, you can do it in that way. Uh, the Bluest Eye, you know, that, that beautiful book by Toni Morrison, um, it plays with um, the idea of beauty as well as race on screen, making sometimes explicit references like to um, Shirley Temple um, and Greta Garbo and Ginger Rogers as well. So... Um, you know, for example, there's this short passage. Frida brought her form graham, graham crackers on a sauce and some plat some milk and a blue and white Shirley Temple cup. She was a long time with the milk and gazed fondly at the silhouette of Shirley Temple's dimpled face. Frida and she had a loving conversation about how cute Shirley Temple was. I couldn't join them in their adoration because I hated Shirley. Not because she was cute, but because she danced with Bojangles who was my friend, my uncle, my daddy, and who ought to have been soft-shoeing it and chuckling with me. Instead, he was enjoying sharing, giving a loving dance, dance thing with one of those little white girls whose socks never slid down under their heels. So I said, I like Jane Withers. So, um, you know, the characters in the book are these, these young girls, and they're getting told different stories about race from the media, from film, like films including Shirley Temple, who's you know, dancing with Bojangles, who's um, who was a black artist, singer, dancer, and you know what sorts of messages are they receiving there, and as well as from school, um, as well as from their parents, as well as from other members of society, like other adults who talk to them and sort of are threatening to them in society and 
there's this this idea of the bluest eye where one of the characters wants to have blue eyes she has brown eyes she is a young black girl and she has brown eyes and she wants bluest eyes and she imagines herself obtaining them and it's this sort of um strange um inversion of beauty where she thinks she's woken up beautiful but of course it's all um it's all a farce and you know actually she was beautiful before and it just questions the way that young girls um the young girls experience what they see on screen um then we have in a very different way the book of illusions um, where Paul Auster is talking about silent cinema and I've talked about him a ton on the Matterhorn so I'm just going to leave it at mentioning that if you want to look at the Book of Illusions I have a couple of links for you there um, there's also a cinematic book genre um, this is some people suggest that this preceded cinema itself and you actually had books you know in the 1800s for example that made use of like um, more montage like scenes that were sequenced together and that perhaps cinema was borrowing from literature in this way um but we have we have books that for example were supposed to be made into films from the beginning like graham green's the third man he wrote this um for carol reed with the film in mind you have other writers who of course really hope that their book makes it into a movie because that's where the big money is anyway so they might write it um, with more cinematic sequences that might be more dialogue for example so it's easy to move it into like a script um, or the way that the scene is described so that can do it but I, I really I think of uh, Jeffrey Eugenides Virgin Suicides for as an example of this and of course this was made into a film as well um, by Sofia Coppola but even having not known that when I first read it um, it read to me like a film and he's playing with media images like uh, Toni Morrison does for young girls and the way that the media is filtered through um, these teenage girls, the way that they think of themselves when they view the media. And so the way that we read the story in sequence, is, it's as if we're outside of it. You know, we're not... Um, it, it's like the camera is rolling and we're just watching their lives um, rather than really understanding them in a more kind of empathetic way, even though we do end up having empathy for them. Um, so again, some of the ways that you can use cinema in your fiction are illusions, making use of genre, montage, cultural, cultural iconic films, the, the space of absence as well. Um, politics the political of films and the cinematic book genre and perhaps you do it already as well but on uh, later this week in the let's do this follow-up I'll be making this longer podcast today into a five-minute um, sequence of three digestible items that you can put into play right away spaces and places this is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. Okay, so today, as I mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about apartment buildings um, and why, how they can be unique in telling stories. So I'm, you know, over the years of living in many different apartments, um, having moved country and even within Hong Kong, I think I lived in six different apartments during my time there. Um, I've just been really interested in how an apartment makes you feel and the components of the apartment. So, um, you know, these juxtapositions between neighbors, sometimes very anonymous, um, sometimes not, you know, if there is or is not a doorman or an entryway and how that changes the way you enter the space. Um, you know, is it, is it a small apartment building? Is it a huge skyscraper? Is it a housing estate? Um, is it something, as I said, with a doorman that maybe also has other things in it, other amenities like a gym or a restaurant? Um, a lot of Hong Kong apartments have um, other elements within them. My friends had like a pool on top of their apartment building, right? So 
the places I've lived have made you know, different apartment spaces. For example, when I lived in Italy in an apartment, um, the balcony in the courtyard, it was not so far from so many other balconies in the courtyard. And every evening toward uh, dinner time, you could hear and smell everyone getting ready with their meals. You could hear all the pots and pans. You could hear people speaking, sometimes even playing music while they were cooking. Um, if it was warm enough, people would eat outside, even though it was a very tiny balcony. Um, people would just get outside um, to experience being out there. And even though you could hear people easily across the way, that didn't seem to bother anyone. There was no um, sort of seeking privacy. Um, whereas here in Basel in Switzerland, um, the the space between the buildings is much bigger. Um, and we do have balconies that, were, that can see the balconies on the other side um, of the buildings. But um, I rarely see people over there. Or if I do, it's very quiet. And there are certain, there are laws here about how loud you can be and when you can make noise and things like that. So it's part of the culture to respect um, each other by keeping that sort of quiet. I guess the Italians might say it's more respectful to allow people to um, make the noise that they want to make. So, you know, it just depends how you see things, but it really changes the experience. Although, you know, I really can, um, like in the early morning, I often get up in the early morning to write or do yoga and I can see into the other apartment buildings if anybody has the light on. Um, not that I'm trying to spy, but it's just right there in front of me. There's one building with a beaut or one uh, apartment with really beautiful bookshelves. I'm always really interested, like what's on those shelves. Um, not that there's anything crazy happening, but it makes me think of uh, Rear Window by Hitchcock and the way that you have the kind of the spying and gazing on the people on the other side and the way that it's framed like a film is framed. Um, and there's also montage because of lights going on and off or blinds going up and down um, that you see only particular parts of a narrative. So if I were to keep spying on my neighbors, which I'm not planning to do, um, I would get little pieces of their stories, um, but I would never really have the full picture. So by filling in the blanks, I might make something um, that's really wrong, or I might cover uncover a crime like the characters in Rear Window do. Um, but it was really different in Hong Kong because it was, at least in the places that I lived, and this is most, most apartment buildings, I would say, it's much more anonymous. Um, you barely see anybody um, in the building once the doors are closed. You know, it's very sound tight. I wouldn't hear um, maybe unless the upstairs neighbors are being very loud stomping. Um, but if they're playing music or anything, I couldn't hear this. Um, it was a much more separated space. But then at the same time, you would usually have a doorman, even if it's not a fancy place, you would often have a doorman of some kind um, who sometimes they would greet you, sometimes they're just there as kind of supposedly security um, or to just kind of liaise, I guess. And so there's there's different kinds of entrances still, and some of it depends on how much like you're paying for your for your apartment. But it also creates a space of entry where occasionally um, different denizens of the apartment will like pause for a moment, maybe at the elevator, and talk to each other as they um, enter the elevator. Um, I've had some really lovely doormen who you know would always ask about my day and. If I was away, they would ask about that. I would ask about them and their family. Um, just like very, very, very friendly. Um, and I had others who were always kind of half asleep. And you would see, sometimes just see them with their styrofoam takeaway meal. And, you know, I'm sure it was not a very well-paid job. So I understand if they weren't expected to do it at a, at a higher level, that they just wanted to sleep. And maybe they had another job they had to get to. So I don't know. But... You know, there's this, there's these characters in the, in the housing, in the, in the housing estate. And if you have a public estate in Hong Kong, as I mentioned in some of the films, it's, um, it's very different because you might have a more open interior where you, you might leave your door open just to get air flowing through, even though Hong Kong does subsidize, um, energy for air conditioning in the summer months um, because otherwise it's just dangerous to be in some of these places. It gets so hot and humid. Um, but there is more of that 
interaction, I think. Um, so there's just, you know, we say apartment building, but, you know, this building that I'm in now, there's six apartments. It's attached to another apartment building and another one um, and a few that go around in kind of a block. But there's six apartments here. We have a WhatsApp group with the six different apartments um, in this building. And, you know, when I was in Hong Kong, I lived in some buildings with like over 40 floors and I have no idea how many people live there. But, you know, we definitely didn't have a WhatsApp group because it would just be way too many people. So I guess in my fiction, I've played around with the idea of the filmic apartment. And I mean, apartments in general, but when I say the filmic apartment, because I mean, I've really studied the way that filmmakers um, place different elements in the apartment to show the stories of the people there, um, really trying to make these spaces part of the stories themselves. So I'll just read a short passage of how I kind of define this. So identity play occurs in the elliptical space of the filmic apartment, which is the virtual, the individual's reality. So there you see I'm, I'm using Deleuze as well. And I, of course, go into this a lot more deeply, but just for your, for your reference here. It represents the imaginative space of the human mind, as well as the individual's private experience where one may navigate the filters and influences of the city, her people, her space, and her social codes. The Certos ellipses of their own quest give power to the users of social codes, the renters, whoever they may be. Jacques Derrida speaks of the ellipsis as an undefined gap in literature to explore the unknown and before the law. Although the word is usually an omission within a grammatical construction suggesting ambiguity, this space is also one of imaginative possibility with language. Perhaps some ideas are so abstract or untranslatable that we cannot write them in standard language. Identity works in this way as well. It is in constant flux and therefore undefinable. But the word also comes from the Latin for to leave. Lepen. We may apply this notion to the apartment in literature. The apartment is a space where the inhabitant leaves the city. One is both within and without the city. The shifting of frames, here walls and doorways, allows for identity exploration between the subject and the culture outside in a space of play. Because of its multiple layers, it is a space that is unique in its relationship with time and space. Through the study of space and time, whose relationship here shall be explored later, in literature, within the constructs of the chronotope as defined by Mikhail Bakhtin in Forms of Time and of the Chronotope in the novel, we can find empowerment rising from energies that flow in a productive spiral in the apartment's interior. Confined spaces channel urban chaos into meaningful representations of identity. And just one more short quote here to help you to see the way I'm bringing things um, together in case it interests you. The ability of the filmic apartment ellipsis to play with borders of nationality and culture, as well as the contrasts of public-private, postmodern-modern, and real imaginary overall creates the effect of the Derridian difference where binaries are deconstructed. In this space, ontological discovery can be experienced both by the immigrant in the film and the viewer in front of the screen. Multiple virtuals, the film, the apartment, the immigrant's mind, contain further spaces of play and imaginaries for possibilities. But all these ideas that come from the filmic apartment ellipsis are dependent on spatial justice. To better understand the impact of the border, this paper investigates the immigrant's urban experience and the way that space reflects and shapes the individual's reality. So I'll just leave it at that for today. So you can just you can just think about um, that connection, maybe. Um, if you're interested in the apartment in film and then the way that therefore you could bring it into any kind of fiction, um, I'd recommend you look at Polanski's apartment trilogy, which is Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and Le Locataire or The Tenant um, in the international version. Um, which are all versions of horror or thriller films, um, but also make use of the immigrant, especially in the tenant, and just these plays of culture and the virtual. Um, so uh, also recently I've been watching this show, Murders in the Building. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the one with Selena Gomez, Martin Short, and um, Steve Martin, who kind of come together to solve a murder in their apartment building in New York and they create a podcast to do it um 
I'm watching the third season now and it's, I don't know, it's not as good as the first two. <laughs> Probably because it, it leaves the apartment building quite a bit. But the way it's playing with this building and the kind of hidden spaces and all the characters who make up the building itself is a really cool way of thinking about um, apartments, even though it's a super ritzy rich apartment building in New York. Um, it's really it's really fun. And, uh, you know, there's another building in New York that's been used in this way um, in quite a bit of literature, and that's the Waldorf Astoria, which was really um, two hotels side by side, this iconic space in New York. It became the site of films, of this Langston Hughes advertisement sort of poem. Um, and uh, it it was alluded to by the Muppets. Um, there was a poem by Wallace Stevens. It appeared in a book by Anne Rand. So, you know, in a lot of different places but you know the New York apartment I think is perhaps more internationally famous as a motif um you see it in a lot of literature and a lot of film um you know going way back uh the literature even before uh cinema existed so I'd love to hear how you're interested in using um apartments in your fictions or what experiences you have with apartments yourself um, as always, I'll bring you a five minute version of today's topic to help you get creative and let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 